And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. This is Blake McVeigh. I'm happy to host today Paul Tuff. Paul is a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine, a regular contributor to This American Life, and he is the author of three previous books, including the best-selling How Children Succeed, Grit, Curiosity, and the Hidden Power of Character. Today, we will be discussing his newly published work, The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. I was really impressed as I read through this book, the the scope of it, the amount of time you put into it, the detail, the personal stories. Was there any one thing in particular that prompted you to work on this? I mean, it came out of a previous book that I wrote, How Children Succeed, that came out in 2012. And there was one chapter in that book about higher education and found it fascinating. But when I got to the end of that, felt like I had just sort of scratched the surface and there was a lot more that I had to understand. And what was really true for me in terms of how I reported this book is also connected to, to sort of why I found it a fascinating undertaking, which is that there were sort of two sides to the reporting. There was the reading through reports and economist papers and data sets and trying to understand the big national picture. But then also, you know, as you, as you know from the book, I talked to hundreds of students and write about, you know, a half dozen or so in, in a lot of detail. And so that experience of actually, you know, once I understood the basic contours of the national system, being able to talk to individual young people and hear from them what it was like to try to negotiate through this system, that was what made me stick with it, I think. That is one of the aspects of the book that I found most enjoyable is that, yes, you did include a lot of numbers and facts. At the same time, you interspersed all of these personal stories. It made the numbers come alive. So that's something that I've tried to do in all four of my books is balance out the personal stories with the big picture And I found as a writer, it's a challenge to get that balance just right. And I feel like the temptation, I feel like as a magazine writer, which I used to be, and as a book writer, is to try to sort of slot characters into specific roles and then shave down their stories so that they perfectly fit, you know, whatever psychology study or economics paper I'm trying to illustrate. And I really tried to resist that in in the reporting for this book and let these students really be individuals in all their complicated, you know, teenage and early 20s selves. And so that kind of made it harder because the connections were not always so clear, but it felt really important. So I was talking to people mostly at the end of high school and the beginning of college. So their experiences were all different and strange and fascinating. But then I also kept having the experience that maybe you'll recognize from reading the book of talking to adults, right? Like there's a 60-year-old head of admissions. There's a tutor in his 40s, an SAT tutor in his 40s. There are, you know, different administrators and educators, math teacher in his 70s. Right. And then when I would talk to them about the work they were doing, the conversation would sort of come around to their own college days. And maybe it's not a coincidence. Maybe the reason I was drawn to these characters was that they had these different ideas about higher education. But in every case, their stories of the end of high school and the beginning of college and and their time in college were complicated in their own way. So trying to capture all those stories felt important to me just as the journalist, but it also felt like as a writer, it would give this additional sort of texture and complication to what can often be very sort of hard, clear, black and white data. I do feel you succeeded in allowing the various stories and how they are connected and how they're connected to the studies and the data and whatnot that I think you really succeeded in that is the wide range and type of people that you interviewed, everywhere from the older student 
going to the welding classes in North Carolina, to the almost an emeritus, the math professor. He's yeah. got to be close. He's, he's not. Uh, no, he's still in there. You succeeded in getting the pulse of America in all its diversity. That's very nice of you to say, because <laughs> that was a lot of what I was trying to do. I mean, I just kept having this feeling talking to these people and, you know, some of them students, but as we, as we were just talking about, some of them, you know, being much older, that like it did feel like there was in hearing all these people's college stories, which in some ways are coming of age stories, which in some ways are social mobility stories or stories about like, you know, changing where you're from and figuring out where you're going next. That felt like in all these different decades. So, you know, Barry Treisman, this math professor, his story was in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, the students today are, are very much 21st century stories, but that they all had this American quality. And maybe that's just because I'm drawn to those sorts of stories. But I do feel like there is this way that, you know, what I was looking for in economist terms is social mobility, right? Just the right. process of changing your life. And like novelists have different ways of thinking about social mobility, but economists call it social mobility. And that that is this really American American idea. You know, I went back and wrote about democracy in America, the Alexis de Tocqueville book that I'd never read before. And it was so striking the way that he identified social mobility as this quintessentially American quality. And he actually thought it was terrible as like a French nobleman. Right. He was like, yeah, why, why would you want social mobility? But I feel like there is something sort of deeply American about all of those stories. So being able to both have that history and that context, but, but then capture the diversity of those stories was what I liked best about the reporting. I remember when I first got the book and started kind of, you know, preparing to read it, looking at the table of contents and things like that, I read, you know, the titles of the chapters, the mm -hmm. nine chapters, and I started thinking, the way these chapters are titled, it's almost as if he is describing nine movements. I love these insights. I mean, I, I feel like when you go on book tour, you talk a lot about ideas and issues. And like, what I really want to talk about as a writer is like yeah, <laughs> how I wrote the book and how I structured it. But I haven't thought about that stuff in a while. I don't know if I thought about it as movements. It's a really great analogy. I'm glad that it struck you that way. But definitely, I thought a lot about the shape of how that... I mean, I was going to say how the argument was developing, but I'm not sure that it really is a book with an argument. I think how the story was developing, right? When I was working through the early chapters of the book, I kind of got this sense of like, oh, these kids are working against the man. But then as you get toward the middle and even a little toward the end, you start to see, well, a lot of the people working for the man, you know, a lot of the representatives, they see the problems. They know how hard it is for people to get into college on and on, all the different issues. Yeah, I do think what you were perceiving about sort of going from the enemy being the man to the enemy being a little less distinct is reflective of my own reporting too, that there are certainly moments, lots of moments in the book where there was a particular actor, whether an individual or an organization that I felt mad about because I felt like they were deceiving students or taking advantage of students. And obviously I felt very close to these students. But by the time I got to the end of the book, it really felt like we have met the enemy and he is us. That so much of what is wrong in, in higher education right now is a symptom of bigger changes that have happened in the country over the last few decades and that those are uh, related to changes in the American mindset, you know, that we used to think about higher education and lots of other things in a much more collective way. What benefits you benefits me, and we're not in competition. We are, you know, fellow citizens. And, you know, we still feel that way about some things, but we generally don't feel that way about higher education. We, we I think, feel, feel like we've been trained or we've trained ourselves to think of it as a zero-sum game where we're all in competition with each other. 
and our kids are in competition with each other and not everybody can win and some people are going to lose. And that's just a, a terrible way to think about public education and certainly public higher education. And it's not the way other countries think about it. And I think it's to the detriment, certainly to people with least power in society who can least you know, afford to play that competitive game. But I think it's to the detriment of all of us too, even those who are technically winning. I was a little surprised when I read the chapter, or maybe it was more than one chapter, I can't recall, on the testing organizations, the SAT and the ACT tests and the organizations that run them. I guess I really shouldn't be surprised knowing how America works these days, but I was surprised at how underhanded and how competitive and how profit-driven the whole enterprise is. Yeah, I was surprised as well. I mean, technically, I should point out that it's not profit-driven because they are nonprofit organizations, but it's revenue-driven, right? That that they, right. they in many ways, and I wrote more, more about the College Board than about ACT right. Inc., but they're basically, what they're doing is exactly the same. They are these unusual organizations that are nonprofits, so there are no shareholders. And on one level, there are a lot of people who work there who genuinely think it's mm -hmm. their job to help spread higher education and to make the landscape of higher education more equitable. But they are also, you know, a lot like Coke and Pepsi. They are these two corporations in pitched battle for market share. And the mindset of being after market share changes the way you think about everything. The main thing that I think it changed is it just changed their level of transparency. You know, one of the strange things about those chapters about the College Board is mostly, I mean, I, you know, I do think that there are problems with the SAT. I do think that it has structural qualities that make it sort of impossible for it not to help affluent kids and right. hurt low-income kids. But most of what I uncovered had to do with the way they talked about it. You know, that if they had been transparent and open about everything they were doing, I wouldn't have had anything to write about. You know, it would have been like a couple of sentences. But the fact that they were not being open and transparent about everything they were doing both just meant there was more to report and it was more complicated to report it because I had to both report what they were saying and then like find the documents and talk to the people that helped me understand what was really going on. But it also gave me this window into like, well, what, why is that? Like, why are they not just being transparent about what they're doing? And so that helped me understand, I think, some bigger questions about how people who are involved in higher education think and talk about higher education. I mean, it is this strange fact that so many people who work in higher education, I mean, it's sort of the cliche of like college professors is they're all liberals and progressives, right? So it's not always true, but like right. you know, generally like college campuses, pretty progressive places, everyone involved is basically working in a system that is perpetuating class inequality, right? Like if you are a professor, if you are working for Princeton University, you might be doing all sorts of great work, but your institution, it's basic like function in the economy is to make the rich richer. And I feel like that introduces a sort of level of cognitive dissonance that is difficult for people to wrestle with. Because like if you're a history professor at Princeton, you did not go through your, you know, years of studying history in order to work for an institution that perpetuates social inequality, right? right. You want to make the world a better place. And, you know, you are for a handful of students that you're talking to. Um, but you're part of this system that's doing something different. And I think I think that sort of cognitive dissonance for people, whether it's at the college board or in the institutions uh, or even parents, you know, like trying to help their kids get to college, we all have a hard time acknowledging our role in that system, I think. What is frustrating for me as a reporter and as a reader and, and for you as a reader, you just get mad about like, well, why can't you just be straightforward about this stuff? A certain amount of people involved in the process they seem to forget what college is all about. Mm -hmm. 
those are the parts where it's easy to just kind of lose your temper and be like, oh, what are you even doing? I hear what you're saying, and I think that's true to a certain degree. I feel, though, like it is within individuals, that line. I resist sort of feeling like there are good guys and bad guys in the book because I feel like, I mean, there are definitely some people who I really admire who are, I don't think there's much bad guy in them, but <laughs> but, but I do feel like within, you know, within lots of characters in the book, there are things that they do that I find frustrating and that they're making things more unequal. But I feel like a lot of those people are setting out to do good things. Well, I think two great examples that you have in the book, the administrator at DePaul, because, you know, he was a first-generation college student, and he had kind of fought his way up. But mm -hmm. now he's an administrator at a major university in one of our major cities. He has to refuse some students. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the other great example of that concept is the administrator at the... Angel Perez in Connecticut yes, at Trinity how, College. How they have to yeah. slowly pare down. I mean, they've got to hit that number. And, yeah. I mean... They're disappointing many more students than they are fulfilling their dreams of going to college. Angel Perez is the name of the admissions director at Trinity in Hartford, and John Bockenstedt is the name of the admissions director at DePaul. He is actually now Oregon State, I think, um, but when I was writing about him, he was at DePaul. And so what I appreciated so much about them, they are just, you know, really honest about what they're doing, right? And in fact, they helped me understand the system, the craziness of the current admission system. Algorithms and money all play into the way that students are chosen for different colleges and the financial aid that students get. I mean, it's fascinating and weird and scary stuff, but they are just both really honest about like, yeah, there's a lot that is not what we're doing that is not what we wish we could be doing. Mm -hmm. But here, we, we want to explain to you and let you explain to everybody else th through this book the parameters that we're working under, the restrictions. And most of those restrictions have to do with money. You know, like Trinity is losing $8 million a year. So Angel cannot just be as generous as he wants with financial aid. He's got to think about tuition. Uh, but the fact that he was straightforward about that and helped me understand, ah, this is how it works. This is how admissions works. You have to think about tuition. It's not a meritocracy. That, to me, was part of why he was such a valuable character, certainly. But I feel like someone who I really admire. I do want to also talk a little bit about the U.S. News and World Report rankings. I've been aware of that since I went to college, you know, late 80s, early 90s. Do you think it serves an important purpose? And in a theoretical world where we just did away with it altogether, do you think that would be helpful to universities and students? I think there is call for it in the market, right? So they, right. they're not doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. They're it's doing not for it because... students, really, is it? Well, it's for parents. It's for families. Yeah. And they families take it very seriously. And if families didn't take it seriously, first of all, they would stop doing it because they weren't wouldn't make all the money that they make yeah, from people uh, buying it and going to the site. The people who dislike it the most are the universities, right? So you think of it as like, well, that seems like a good sort of consumer reports kind of deal, right? Like, so here it is. It's benefiting the consumer. It's like, so yeah, of course, the people who are being ranked don't like it, but they shouldn't because, you know, U.S. News is exposing their secrets. But the reality is there are so many factors in the way that U.S. News makes its decisions that rewards institutions for behaviors that are not promoting equity but doing the opposite, right? So, you know, it's like the same Ivy League colleges that are ranked highest every year. And 
the colleges with the lowest acceptance rates, but also like the lowest percentages of low-income students. You know, one way to look at the college rankings is just how many rich kids do you have? The more rich kids you have, the higher the test scores you have, the higher you're going to be ranked. And so this is something John Bakkenstead helped me understand, which is that, you know, you might look at the fact that there's so many rich kids at those top schools and say like, oh, well, of course, you know, that's the way things work in the United States. The school gets really good and the rich kids flock to it. But he said you can look at it the other way, that they're actually ranking their institutions based on how many rich kids are already there. Because when you have a lot of affluent students, all these other things come along with it. Affluent students tend to have the highest test scores. They pay a lot in tuition and their families and their you know alumni like them give a lot of money to the institution, which is partly what U.S. News looks for. They're really rewarding institutions for being elite, right? And elite in education can mean like high quality, but it also means has a lot of rich kids. The criteria for a high ranking is somewhat suspect. The other crazy thing about U.S. News list is that I think people in higher education or certainly parents take it very seriously as if there's something scientific about it, right? But it's just like a bunch of magazine editors sitting around, yeah. like deciding how they want to count things. I've been a magazine editor, and this is what like <laughs> this is what sells magazines, right? Rank the top 500 albums or the top, you know, six mm -hmm. world wars or something like that, and like <laughs> everyone loves that. And magazine editors know they're just making up the algorithm, like let's give five points to this and six points to that. But U.S. News has the sort of patina of science behind it, like, oh, yes, we've adjusted our rankings this year. We're only giving, you know, 2.5% to that criteria instead of 3%. But it's just a bunch of editors deciding what they want to favor and however they change it. And actually, in the, over the past year, they have actually made a couple of positive changes. They have made some changes that give some benefit to institutions that help with social mobility. But on the whole, the way that they set their criteria correlates strongly with institutions that admit a lot of affluent students. Well, I'm glad you brought up the term patina of science because the manipulation of statistics plays a significant role in this work. You might have specific studies in mind. The one that comes to mind is this study that this economist named Carolyn Hawksby and her colleague Sarah Turner did just earlier this year. So it was one of the last pieces of reporting I did. I just kind of slipped it in at the end because I felt so important. And Carolyn Huxby is this unusual character in my book. She comes, she keeps recurring, right? Mm -hmm. She's, she, there are like four of her different studies that I refer to. And there's one, this experiment that she did that I end up kind of investigating and it turned out that it didn't replicate particularly well. And so, you know, that might be seen as a critique of her work, but actually I think her work is super important and fascinating. And so this one mo most recent study that I wrote about is where she looked at the way that institutions game the Pell Grant cutoff. So to explain what that means, Pell Grants are these federal grants that the federal government gives based on family income. And it's not sort of a hard and fast rule. It's not like 40,000 you get right. it and 50,000 you don't. It depends on the size of your family and how many students are in college and a few other things. But it's somewhere around sort of a little bit below the median wage, $50,000 or so for a family. And more and more colleges are actually judged on how many students who qualify for Pell Grants they let in. And this is a, a contrary indicator to everything else. Right? right, because 
if you want really high test scores, you should not let in a lot of students who are eligible for Pell Grants. But now we are giving this new incentive to colleges, like, okay, do all that other stuff that U.S. News prizes, and also tell us what your Pell percentage is. And so what two of them, Sarah Turner and Carolyn Hawksby, discovered is that certain institutions are really gaming that Pell Grant system and letting in as many students as they can who almost make too much to earn a Pell Grant. So there aren't admitting a lot of truly low-income students. They are finding students who are as rich as you can be and still be eligible for a Pell Grant. And they have this remarkable graph that shows that like in the $1,000 range below the Pell Grant cutoff are huge numbers of students. And if you get just over the line and you make a little bit too much to be eligible for a Pell Grant, you're totally out of luck. There's no way these institutions are going to admit you. So that, to my mind, was the most kind of remarkable evidence of colleges, you know, really playing with the numbers. And I have to say, I was a little surprised at how bold the college board was with their manipulation of data for the SAT. The one that struck me the most was this experiment they did with this online learning system called Khan Academy. And in lots of ways, this partnership is actually a really good thing. It's free test preparation for anyone who wants it in the United States. And test prep is something that correlates heavily with income. I spent some time with this SAT tutor in Washington, D.C. who charges $400 an hour and does an incredible job of raising his kids' test scores. And once you spend some time with him, you realize there's something about the test prep business that is deeply unfair. And so the Khan Academy partnership was designed to level that playing field. And in some ways it did. So when they got the data back, they showed like no matter who you were, no matter what your family background, if you practiced for you know five hours, you would get the same kind of benefit, right? Which is a positive thing. But they also discovered and didn't report that there was this real variation in how different groups were using Khan Academy. And it's, you know, actually not that surprising, right? It was kids from wealthy families, kids whose parents themselves had gone to college, they were using Khan Academy more, which meant that actually it was not leveling the playing field for all the students who were using it. It was giving an additional benefit to rich kids over non-rich kids. And so you can take all that data and say, like, this is still a good thing. The analogy that sometimes they use now is to public libraries, right? Like, Maybe rich kids use public libraries more than poor kids, but it's still good for everybody that we have these public libraries because wealthy young people have lots of other options. They can go buy books, right? But here is this free resource that's important to have for more disadvantaged communities. And they could have made that case, but they didn't make that case. Instead, they just hid the data that did not contribute to the story they wanted to tell, which is we've done this amazing thing for the disadvantaged students of America and we have leveled the playing field. And instead, they just emphasized the data that helped them make that point. And that, to me, was sort of the most disappointing example of the College Board not leveling with American students. It was frustrating, if that's the right word, in part because they were presenting themselves as serving these students who they were misleading, right? That the people who really this project was designed to help, they weren't leveling with. That, to me, feels unfair when an organization with as much power and leaders who have as much sort of social capital as those leaders do are telling a story to, you know, to low-income, first-generation students that is not the full story. That really feels like someone's being taken advantage of. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't this one of the ways in which they seem to be fighting this trend toward no-test admissions? Yeah, test optional admissions. Yeah, test optional. Yeah, I sort of present it as two separate chapters and as two separate stories, and I think they would look at it that way as well. But you're right, it's part of the same general story of this split personality that the College Board has, where there's part of them that wants to benefit 
students and level the playing field and another part that is really concerned about market share and revenue. So test optional institutions are institutions that allow applicants to submit an application without submitting their SAT or ACT score. And it's still a pretty small minority of American colleges and universities that do this, but it's a growing number. And it represents a kind of existential threat to the College Board and to ACT Inc. Because if colleges stop demanding standardized tests for admission, you know, who's going to take a standardized test just for fun? So they have been trying to come up with a narrative that argues against test optional admissions. And for a long time, the argument was just like you get more information if you look at standardized tests as well as High school grades. High school grades. And you do. You do. You get a little bit more information. And so, and I talk about this in the book, most people agree that high school grades, including the college board, that high school grades are the single best predictor of how well a student will do in college. But if you add their test score to that, you get a slightly better prediction. So for a long time, their argument has just been like, more information is better, so don't go test optional. Keep more information. But what John Bockenstedt and Angel Perez and other admissions people who are in favor of test optional admissions say is the small amount of extra predictivity that you get with standardized test score is outweighed by the inequity that's inherent in that test, right? If you have a test that always favors rich kids over poor kids, adding that, the trade-off's not worth it for the pressure that you're going to feel to admit more rich kids. Uh, So, you know, that's like a decent debate, right? You can actually have that debate on either side. But the new argument that the college board started making was that actually it is high school grades that are putting low-income students at a disadvantage, and it's the SAT that is going to level the playing field for those students. Now I get into a lot of details about grade inflation, but the big picture is that's just not true. It's like there's just no question that if you have a system that just looks at high school grades, that's going to be more of an advantage to low-income students. If you have a system that focuses on standardized tests, that's going to be more of a benefit to high-income students. And so the fact that they were trying to tell this story that was basically the opposite of the real narrative felt wrong to me. I thought it was fitting that you ended that section something along the lines of, in other news, up is down, down is up. (laughs) Yeah. I really enjoyed reading the section of the discussion where I think it was Kiki at Princeton, you know, young African-American woman, very high achiever, but she always felt out of place among the rich white kids. If I remember correctly, I think she was one of the people that, I don't think this term was used, but she saw all the brown nosing going on around her and it was very unappealing to her. Am I getting that part right? It's in that same chapter. There's a lot of students who talked about that question of whether you should just do the work and that what you're judged on, as they were told by their parents, these sort of high achieving, low income students, as they were told by their parents all through high school, like what just matters is the work, you know, and then they get into this place where like how you get along with your professors really matters a lot. And kids who went to private schools all get that. They know how you deal with professors. They know how you sort of befriend them and flatter them and talk their language. But a lot of the first generation and low income students at these highly selective institutions have a hard time accepting that that's actually the way you get ahead at college. And I believe it's the last chapter of the book where you talk about the differences in in study habits and how the kids that studied by themselves as opposed to the kids that studied and even sometimes made it a social event where they got together with food and you know, almost made it a party to study calculus or something like that, that those kids were better at the topics. And it's not necessarily based on, you know, Asians are not inherently better at math, 
but in certain Asian cultures, they tended to study in certain ways that just happened to be more helpful. Just to fill in a couple of the blanks, so that study you're talking about is was one done by this calculus professor we were discussing before, right. Uri Trisman at the University of Texas. And when he was a graduate student at Berkeley, he was the first one using sort of, you know, sociological techniques of interviewing and hanging out with students. He was the first one to notice that there were these different study styles among the Asian American and African American students, and that the Asian American students were all studying in a group and making a social event of it and having fun and sharing ideas. And, and if someone was falling behind, they would like figure it out right away because everyone around them wouldn't have the right answer. And the African-American students were being much more, you know, sort of quote unquote serious uh, and sitting alone in, the, in a room or in the library and just working. Yeah. I mean, so I think the, how that connects with the research that this Harvard sociologist, Anthony Jack, did with first-generation students at highly selective institutions uh, who often, yeah, focus on the work rather than on the sort of socializing with professors is that I think a lot of the super achievers from, you know, low-income or first-generation homes, and I think probably it's more true for African-Americans, so I couldn't say that for sure. They get this message from their parents and from their culture that the only way you are going to survive and get to the kind of institution you deserve to be at is just being incredibly serious and cutting everything else out of your life. And so they often do, right? They work incredibly hard in middle school and high school. The image that they have is that social life is the enemy, right? Like socializing is a thing that will bring you down, that will distract you from your work. And then here are all these Asian American kids or, you know, the rich white kids at these highly selective institutions who have figured out the benefits of socializing, right? For whom socializing is not distraction, but it's either in the case of those Asian American students, a way to learn calculus, <laughs> or in the case of those Princeton students hanging out with their professors, a way to make connections and get letters of recommendation and do the kind of networking that is going to help you get all the benefits of a Princeton education. So yeah, I do feel like that, you know, the, the, the advice those parents are giving their kids is obviously incredibly beneficial up to a certain point, but then suddenly they enter into a world where that rule is no longer active and applicable. And I think it often really leads them astray at that point. So it's interesting. I think I just made this connection as I was listening to you just now. Since the term is social mobility, if you leave the social part out of it, you're not really achieving your goals. And and I really love, I believe it's the last chapter, the, the UT professor, and about how he takes a very social approach to helping his students. So really putting the social in social mobility. Yeah, that's a fascinating idea. I hadn't thought of that sort of double meaning of the word social. Yeah, yeah but it's certainly true with Uri Trisman's calculus class. So he really, you know, is a big believer. So he was the one who discovered these different study strategies among the Asian American and African American students at Berkeley decades ago. And he continues to use that with, you know, his very diverse class, just getting them to interact. And I think he's got two reasons for doing that. One is he is a big believer in the psychological school that points to the importance of belonging in student success. And he knows that if you're a first generation student from, you know, the Rio Grande Valley or ranching community in West Texas and you come to Austin, you come to a rigorous school like UT, your first semester, you are going to feel very alone and freaked out. And so he knows that when students study together in study groups, they're going to do better. 
But he also just thinks like getting to know people in that first semester makes a big difference, right? So he actually, he'll wander around before the class starts and quiz students on who's sitting next to them. What's her name? What's his name? Who's this sitting behind you? And you actually get, you know, participation points for knowing the names of everyone around you, right? It's a goofy little game, but like, you know, you're sitting in a 120 person freshman calculus class. There's a lot of students who go through that class and learn the names of about two people, right? Yeah. But almost everyone in that calculus class knew the names of like, two-thirds of the other students in that that's class. Impressive. And that's like, that sets you in good shape for the rest of your college career. Just having somebody you can say, hey, you, as they walk across campus, yeah. those sort of loose ties not only will benefit you in practical ways, but also just make you feel as you're walking around the campus like, oh yeah, this is my home. This is my place. This is who I am. To use such a personal touch yeah. with so many students at one time, not every professor probably <laughs> works it that way. No, definitely not. You know, one of the things that is so striking to me about higher education is how many professors and administrators just don't think it's part of their job to get to know their students, right? They think like, uh, my job is to put the work up on the board and whoever wants to absorb it and learn my subject can right. do that, right? And there is, I think this, fortunately, this new idea emerging and Uri Treisman was on the forefront of pushing this decades ago where professors and administrators are just actually thinking about their students. They actually are putting effort into helping them succeed, mm -hmm. think it's their job, their responsibility to help these students succeed. And they realize that if they want to help them succeed, they have to get to know them. You know, they have to cross some of the natural barriers between professors and students and actually connect to students on a human level, right? And that's going to look different in different for different personalities and different professors. But it's just so important to create that kind of connection. And you could see how much it meant to the students when they felt like here is this professor who actually cares whether I succeed or not. That meant a lot to them. And I like, along those same lines, I like how he rejected the idea of using a course to weed out students. You know, yeah. calculus, he did not feel or does not feel like should be that course that separates the wheat from the chaff. Uh, he wants everybody to succeed. And I remember when I went to grad school, one of the first courses you take, the professor was very proud that he never gave over a C. Yeah. And, you know, so that frustrated a lot of students, you know, the high achievers that wanted straight A's throughout. And I think, I mean, you know, there's a, a case to be made for rigor and like having a sure. super easy course is, doesn't help anybody. But yeah, there has long been, and I'm sure still is in lots of places, this attitude among a lot of educators, especially higher education professors, that their job is to separate the wheat from the chaff, to weed out the people who just can't hack it in this field. And you know, it just, just so happens that every time that somebody does that, it tends to be the first generation low income students of color who are the ones who are weeded out, right? Which is part of why, you know, STEM fields especially are continue to be dominated by white male students. And genuinely, there are some students who shouldn't be in a particular major and they can figure that out for themselves as time goes on. But for a professor to sort of take pride in failing students, I feel like is just a sign of a certain attitude in higher education that I hope is starting to fade. Well, I don't remember the exact quote. You are going to get to the point where you feel very confused and lost. That just means you're very close to learning it 
or, or something along those yeah. lines. And I thought, what a great quote. He is this real student of psychology as well. And so he understands that like the moment where you're learning is the moment where you're confused. And when you're getting everything right, it's actually, that's not a sign that you're learning. And so I'd go home from these chemistry lectures to my son, who was eight at the time and studying math. And I would talk to him about this. All. It's like, it's such, a, it's such a great, I mean, he drove him nuts, of course, but it's such a great way of thinking about learning, right? That it's those moments where you are struggling, where the most learning is happening. And those moments where you like get the worksheet and get everything right, you might as well not have done it. Like nothing actually was learned during that process. You know, it's such the opposite of how we think about school. I mean, this is like even leaving higher education aside, you know, it's the opposite of how we think about third grade math. It's like a good day is when you get your worksheet and you get it home and get it all right. You must really be learning math, right? <laughs> and so changing these students' mindset into like, when you're suffering, that's good. That means you're a real student. That takes a while for students to really embrace that. That UT calculus class is not the competition mode. It is more the let's work for the collective good mode. Would you say that that is kind of like the summation of the book? It's like everything that has come before this points to we should look at education as improving the welfare of the nation and less so as a competition. I do feel like that's the big message of the book, and I want to sort of try to answer that in two ways, both in terms of all of us, but also the experience of individual students. So that's where I end up in this final chapter where I read about the GI Bill and write about this earlier movement in American education, the high school movement mm -hmm. um, that I hadn't really known much about. But in the early part of the 20th century, all the signs in the economy were that a sixth or an eighth grade education suddenly wasn't enough. It had been enough throughout most of the 19th century, but technology was changing. And in order to work in a factory or, or work in an office, you needed a high school education. And so only about 10 percent uh, in 1910, only about 10% of American young people were getting a high school degree. But then communities all over the country came together and built high schools and made them free and put them in every community in the country. And by the end of that 30-year period, about half of all American students were graduating from high school, right? This huge revolution in terms of education. It was all done very collectively, done by communities, done in a grassroots sort of way. It was, you know, premised on the idea that public education benefits everybody, right? It wasn't like, well, my kid needs a high school, so how am I going to get one? And it right. was our community needs a high school, right? I mean, it should go without saying that that right. makes sense. That's why we have a public education system, right? Because we think that if everyone around us is better educated, we benefit. And for some reason, we still have the, the cutoff for that thinking in the same place that it was 100 years ago, right at the end of grade 12. Like, yeah, yeah, public education benefits us. I mean, not even all of us agree with that, but like maybe we agree with that up till grade 12. But after that, it's like, you know, if you really want that extra, you've got to fight for it. But, you know, in 100 years, things have changed in terms of technology, in terms of the economy. And in order to succeed in the way that you could with a high school degree 100 years ago, you need a lot more than a high school degree now. But we do not have the same response to these signs from technology and from the economy and from the labor market. We do not have the, hey, let's get together and build this, you know, free public higher education system. I mean, we did to a certain extent in the 60s and 70s and 50s. But right now we are doing the opposite. We are pulling back funding from public higher education over the past 15 years or so, we've cut our public higher education budget in every state by 15 to 20 percent per student, which is crazy. So we're doing the opposite from what we did 100 years ago. And there's no good economic case for it. There's no good social case for it. It is just this mindset of competition and, you know, selfishness. 
Okay, so that's the big picture. But but then the other way that, that I think about it is in terms of actual students, right? So because it's true, that collective ethos was true in Uri Treisman's calculus class at the University of Texas. And I think about Kiki Gilbert, this Princeton student we've mentioned a couple of times, right? This low-income student, worked incredibly hard, got to Princeton, is getting an amazing education. But I wrote about her being in this remarkable class that Princeton offers to freshmen called the Humanity Sequence, where it's like 100 students and like a dozen professors, all, you know, Rhodes Scholars and geniuses, and they are teaching all the great works of literature and going back to, you know, the Odyssey. And, and it's these small group conversations where there's 15 young people in a room sitting around a beautiful table in a beautiful classroom. But for Kiki, as I describe in the book, that experience of sitting there in that classroom with those students was like going to war, right? There was no sense that everyone was on the same team. It was like, they were trying to kill me. (laughs) I need to kill them intellectually. But it was this fight, right? And that's a good skill to learn, like how to debate, how to toss ideas around. But it was not fun for Kiki in any way going to that class. It did not make her feel like she was part of a community. It did not make her feel like she was part of a collective. And one of the remarkable things about Uri Treisman's calculus class was that, yeah, like I, I never heard any students, and I talked to a lot of students over, over those months, I never heard of any students like, you know, comparing grades or like being mad that someone else got a better grade than them. There really was this sense that like how well that student does benefits me, right? <laughs> if everyone in this class learns together, uh, if everyone in my little study group, but even everybody else, we're all going to benefit. And I think that was something that Uri Treisman, the professor, just persuaded them of, partly by saying it, but as well just in terms of the way it felt to be in this kind of, he created this kind of foxhole mentality for them where the class was so hard <laughs> and the work was so hard. Uh, and the way he organized these, you know, these study groups, they just spent so much time together that by the end they truly felt invested in each other's success. And so I guess the connection I'm trying to make between these, the big picture and the small picture is that I feel like there's a model there. Right. And it's a model that not that long ago didn't need reminding of. Right. But I think we do that, like we are in this together when it comes to education and higher education. And so if there's one message that I'm trying to get across in the book, it is that idea that like we are in this together. We have forgotten that to a certain degree, but we need to remember it, not only because our, our own experience and our children's experience will be better, but because our nation kind of depends on it. Well put. We need a little less. I did it and a little more. We did it. Yeah, and there's a lot in higher education that is is pushing in the opposite direction, right? We, we recognize students for the I did it moments. We don't recognize institutions or students or ourselves for those we did it moments. So there are many issues that are concerning. There are a few things that are broken. And there is reason for hope. Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, I felt like talking to these students, I mean, the calculus class was the best example, but there were lots of others where talking to young people was just so inspiring. I mean, you know, I I feel like there's something about moments of social mobility that I have sort of a sentimental and emotional attachment to. I mean, it's just it's just an amazing process. A young person coming from difficult background and finding both the support from outside and then the strength from inside to make that change, you know, to change your life, to have ambitions beyond the horizons of your family. That's hard. It's hard for anybody, right? You know, I just kept meeting students who were working tremendously hard to make that jump into a different kind of life. And it was often painful. It was often exciting. It was often thrilling. But to my mind, being able to see that happen was just what made me most hopeful, right? That here is this new generation of young people who, at least the ones I met, are working tremendously hard, often doing it in a really cooperative kind of way, and are improving their own lives and each other's lives. That's a pretty hopeful story for me. 
I thoroughly enjoyed reading the book. It opened my eyes to some things that surprised me a little bit. That's all the time we have today. I want to thank you so much for joining us, and uh, I wish you well in your other interviews. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Paul Tuff is the author of The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. I'm Blake McVeigh, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.